0: So today is the second Sunday of Lent. Um, We're gonna continue this Bible journey through the the biblical stations of the cross and when you sent me that email, uh, it it reminded me, I grew up in the Catholic church and it reminded me of, it was always ladies with the rosaries and going around Holy Week to each station inside of the church and praying those stations. It immediately brought back that, that image in my mind when I was a little kid. So how do I take those images that I remember, they're still an important part of what we are in our faith, and those images, I'll never forget those ladies uh, as soon as he said that. And so this week as we start to prepare for Lent, those images came back in my mind. And so usually what I do when I, I like to learn stuff is, um, gosh, I wish YouTube was around when I was in high school. We had to use these things called encyclopedias and scan stuff to actually read it, but they didn't have this thing called Google, so. Um, but YouTube is an awesome thing. And so I want to pull this clip. I want to watch this together. This is actually a clip from The Passion of the Christ depicting what we just saw or just read in the gospel reading. That movie is something else. A Good Friday for me is, um, if somebody asks me, I love Easter, I love Christmas. But there's something about Good Friday in that week that it separated us from all over the face and what religions we are. So we, we turn the lights off, it's kinda of hard to see, but there's two things when you go when you watch this YouTube video on a computer where you get a good screen. There's two things that stuck out to me on this. Jesus has been beaten, his eyes swollen. But when Caiaphas asks him the question, who do you are, do you see how he immediately the confidence that he answers who he is. And the second thing, you have to, you have to watch it. Um, there's a tear that comes out of Jesus' eye. After Caiaphas cries out to him that it's blasphemy. Now we don't know if Jesus shed tears at that exact moment. I can only imagine that he did. When Caiaphas screams out with charges of blasphemy, Jesus knows there's no going back. The journey to the cross has been set in motion, and the will of the Father must be followed. You see, last week, Pastor Coop defined what this paradox is. So we're gonna keep going on this theme of paradoxes because, well, our lives as Christians is a paradox. So last week, Pastor Coop Define paradox as two opposing truths. So I looked up paradox to see what the definition, I also like this definition that goes along with it. A statement or proposition that despite sound or apparent sound reasoning from acceptable premises leads to a conclusion that seems senseless, logically unacceptable, or self-contradictory. See, when I use or try to use my sound or apparently sound judgment... A reasoning, and try to understand what Jesus did for me, it's not logical, is it? It's not even close to logical. I have done absolutely nothing to deserve the greatest gift God has ever given to man. And yet, I'm given this gift of eternity because God wants a relationship with each and every one of us. He wanted that relationship so much, he became a man and paid the price for our sins with his blood. You know, if Jesus was just another man, Good Friday would not have been good. That Friday would just have just been another Friday. But Easter Sunday made Good Friday great. See, some 2,000 years later, we live in this paradox as Christians. We live literally in our sinful flesh that is stained with the original sin of Adam and Eve, passed on from generation to generation to generation. On our own, we are far from perfect. And yet, our sinful flesh is guaranteed eternity. Not because of our own actions, but by the love of God. We have this constant struggle between our flesh and our faith. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans, and I'm paraphrasing. I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. I know perfectly well that what I am doing is wrong. You see, Paul knew the simple nature inside of him. These words were written almost 2,000 years ago, and yet they probably still apply to us almost every day. Have you ever caught yourself asking that same question that Paul asked himself? Why do I do the very thing I know I shouldn't be doing? Our personal paradox. We know the truth of what we should do, and we know the truth in the love of Jesus Christ, and they collide in our lives. Some days it smacks you right in the face, doesn't it? But I think even more dangerously is the little secrets we hide that we don't hardly give a second thought to until they overwhelm you. Our personal paradox as Christians. In our station on the cross today where Jesus is in front of the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas the high priest, we see the collision of two opposing truths. The truths of the Jewish leaders with Caiaphas as their leaders Colliding with the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. When Jesus says those words, I am, these two opposing truths violently collide. So many times we gloss over Caiaphas in this reading. We know his name and you know he's the high priest and he's the leader of the Sanhedrin council. So if you indulge me a little bit, I love history. So my kids don't, I don't know why they don't, but I like to talk to their history teacher when we go for parent-teacher council conferences and they just wanna go. In fact, I love history so much in college, I actually got an A in a class because I bet the teacher I could get an A without buying the book. So indulge me a little bit in the history because I think the history of what's going on here in Jerusalem at this time is very important to understand what's going on, okay? Okay. So the Sanhedrin council is responsible for civil and religious law of Judea. Judea includes the area of Jerusalem, which is under the control of the Roman Empire. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor appointed by the Roman Empire to rule over this area. Pilate would have appointed the high priest, Caiaphas. So we can assume that Caiaphas and Pilate were pretty good friends, just like politics today, right? The Sanhedrin led by Caiaphas, though, tried to keep the loyalty of the Jews that followed them, and at the same time, time, they're trying to keep peace with the Roman Empire that ruled over them. You see, the Jews didn't want the Romans in Judea. They didn't want them in Jerusalem. But they lacked the military might to keep them out. So they had to live in this struggle and tried to keep the balance, and this was not an easy thing for Caiaphas and the religious leaders to do. It was quite a political paradox at that time. Caiaphas and the rulers are are trying to keep peace between their people and the Romans. And then they get word of this man from Galilee from the north, whose name is Jesus. And he's gaining quite a following there. And he decides during the week of Passover, and Passover is the most holiest of weeks for the Jews, that he's going to come into Jerusalem. So you have to remember when Jesus came in to Jerusalem that week for Passover, it's estimated that the population of Jerusalem swelled to 10 times its normal size. So if 30,000 people lived in Jerusalem, there's 300,000 people in Jerusalem that week. It's a bit crazy. You can't find room at the Super 8, okay? It's packed. Being in, the whole, being in Jerusalem and Israel, I can tell you the Old City is not very big. It's very small. So Caiaphas and the Jewish rulers have plenty on their plates during the week of Passover, and now Jesus decides to come into the city. When he comes into Jerusalem, he's healing, and he's teaching, and as he does, more and more people start to follow him. Jesus speaks and teaches of things that threaten Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin council. When the Jews come to the temple for Passover, it's a very big moneymaker because of this. In the Old Testament, there's elaborate cleansing and sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And if you remember, at the beginning of this week, when Jesus came into the temple the first time, what did he do? He threw the tables over the money changers, didn't he? You think Caiaphas and the high priest didn't hear about that? Jesus was directly challenging the authority of Caiaphas. Jesus was not the first Jew, though, to take on Caiaphas, but this time, Caiaphas had reason to worry. You see, Jesus chose one of the most energy-charged weeks of Passover to come into Jerusalem and directly challenge Caiaphas and the ruling elite. As I wrote that, as I read that after I wrote that, Jesus didn't choose it, God did. So I'll back up a little bit there and add that. God chose this time for Jesus to come into the city. Jesus is not only gaining followers as he comes to Jerusalem. Caiaphas and the rulers are worried that something is going to happen to the temple. Remember, Jesus said just a few days ago after his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday that God was going to destroy the temple. In Luke 21, just before our reading today, five and six, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come where they'll not be left here, one stone upon another that will be thrown, not be thrown down. So Caiaphas hears that Jesus is telling the people that the temple will be destroyed. And that's when Caiaphas decides that Jesus must be stopped. Caiaphas has to be saying, who's this guy Jesus think he is coming in here during the week of Passover and threatening us and causing an uprising with the people? This is a very public time for Jesus to come into the city, and Jesus is a threat that has to be stopped. In a meeting with the Sanhedrin, they discuss the risk of killing Jesus the week of Passover. There could be a massive result by the people. Or, if they let Jesus keep doing what he's doing, the revolt could be even greater than if they do nothing. So in the middle of the night, Jesus is arrested, brought to Caiaphas' house, where Caiaphas rigs a trial to have a witness testify against Jesus that he threatened to destroy the temple. You see, in those days, a guilty verdict took two males to give similar testimony to convict Jesus. But the witnesses that Caiaphas brought forward, they fell miserably in provided, proving Jesus' guilt. So Caiaphas in our reading today goes directly after Jesus. Luke 22:67. 67. Our first be saw, Caiaphas says this, If you are the Christ, tell us. If you are the Christ, tell us. As we saw in this video from the clip of the Passion, Caiaphas was right in his face, wasn't he? He was right up in his face. Tell us, admit it. I want the truth. That's what Caiaphas is telling Jesus. And in 67, 68. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Jesus does not directly refer to himself as the Christ until after his resurrection. And Caiaphas and the council didn't want an answer on Jesus' terms anyway, but would instead interpret it to their own means. Caiaphas and the council refused a serious discussion with Jesus as the Messiah, and their minds are made up. Now Jesus gives his answer, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God to what Jesus is doing here, he's avoiding any political misunderstanding. Instead of referring to himself as Christ, he uses the term son of man, which is the term Jesus usually usually used to refer to himself. Then Jesus points to his heavenly enthronement after his resurrection and ascension, when he says he will be seated at the right hand of God. Caiaphas and the council, through their questioning, now have Jesus moving towards declaring himself as guilty by his own words, and therefore they don't need the testimony of witnesses. Jesus responds back in Luke twenty-two seventy, 70, and he says this. So they all said, are you then the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. You say that I am. When Caiaphas and the council hear the words, I am, They are completely and utterly struck to the core. Jesus not only admits that he's the Messiah, Jesus admits that he is God. Jesus admits that he is divine. Jesus is preaching and teaching many things people have never heard before. Jesus is, is questioned constantly by the religious leaders and they try to prove him wrong. Jesus is doing, what Jesus is doing is almost, it's almost foreign to him, isn't it? It's so close to what they believe, but yet so different. But then Jesus says the words, I am. He's using the term for God that the Jews know and believe. In our reading today from Exodus, when Moses is at the burning bush, and God talks with Moses, he said this. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your father has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is your name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So after God speaks to Moses, Moses asks God a question as to who he is, and God refers to himself as I am. I am, has sent me to you. From I am, we get the word Yahweh. Yahweh comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua. Yeshua, Yahweh. I am, or Yahweh, is a name the Jews call God because that's what God told Moses. And now Jesus just said, I am. You see, the perceived truth of the Sanhedrin Council in Caiaphas has just collided with the truth of Jesus Christ. Today we know what the truth is, but there are people today that are still waiting for the Messiah. Jesus Christ was not their promised Messiah, they say. The Messiah is yet to come. Jesus Christ was not an opposing truth who was killed because he was perceived as a threat. Instead, Jesus was condemned to a death that was taken in our place. Jesus took the cross for our sins. Jesus took the cross so that my life living in the paradox of the sinful flesh, I will end up in eternity with him. See, Jesus came to this earth solely to save each and every one of us. He gave all he had so we can, live, so we can, have, all, so we can have it all in eternity. And yet today, so many still question Jesus. They put Jesus on trial and question the real intent of the man, Jesus Christ. Caiaphas' questioning voice is still heard today. How about our churches today? Price said this stat before I repeat it again. 30,000 different denominations of Christianity in the world. 30,000. If there's 30,000 people living in Jerusalem, that's one different view for every person living in Jerusalem at that time. 30,000 different views and interpretations of God's word. And instead of clinging to what is central to the faith, they debate, they listen to public opinion. They change their viewpoint or beliefs and argue back and forth about what is wrong with those who oppose their viewpoint. they They hold tight to their opposing truth and they don't seek to understand those that oppose them. See, this past year, or this past New Year's Eve, I was able to attend Passion Conference in Atlanta, Georgia at the Mercedes-Benz Dome where the Atlanta Falcons play. I was a volunteer there. There were 65,000 18 to 25-year-old college kids in that stadium for three days. And two of them were my daughters. So when my daughters said that they wanted to go, I started looking up the information on the conference. I wanna go. (laughs) John Piper, Ravi Zacharias, Tim Tebow, uh, Louis Giglio, and, and then that's just the speakers. Then you got music, you got Hillsong, and David Crowder, and Elevation Worship, and on and on and on, right? It's like, I wanna go, I wanna go. So I look up their website, and I'm like, oh, you can volunteer. Dad could be your driver. <laughs> and go along and volunteer, so I did. One speaker that I'd never heard before, I'd never heard her speak, Christine Kane. Christine Kane uh, is an Australian but she's Greek, she's a Greek born in Australia. She's a lover of Jesus, she's an activist, she's an author, international speaker. She and her husband Nick founded the global anti-human trafficking organization, the A21 Campaign. They also founded Propel Women, an organization designed to activate women to fulfill their God-given passion, purpose, and potential. She's an author of several books. But as she spoke, she gave this testimony about herself. When she was born, her birth mother left her in the hospital. She says her birth certificate does not have a name on it. And then after she was given to somebody to raise in foster care, being Greek in Australia, she was raised in what was the equivalent of a government-subsidized housing. And she was sexually abused by four men until the age of 12. She said she struggled with depression and purpose until she was almost 30 years old. When someone introduced her to the grace of Jesus Christ, you see, Christine grew up as a Greek in the Greek Orthodox Church, but she'd never heard the true power and the true grace of Jesus Christ. I think a lot of people think all these conferences for kids, you know, they tell you Jesus loves you, give you a little pat on the back. I'm gonna tell you, she challenged those kids hard. And she challenged the church. And I went back and I watched the video of her talk. And I wrote these notes down because as I was listening to them, uh, it just struck me as as a pastor, as a church worker, and as I have discussions with other church workers inside of our church body and outside of our church body, she said this about church and our faith. Because there's many differences about what it should and shouldn't be, right? She said, is it faith or works? it's both is it spirit or truth it's both is it young or old it's both is it attractional or missional it's both is it evangelism or social justice it's both is it gifts of the spirit or fruits of the spirit it's both is it grace or obedience it's both is it preaching or teaching? It's both. Sensing a pattern here. Is it house church or megachurch? It's both. Is it theological? Theo, uh, I hate it when I preach and then my tongue gets in the way of my mind. Is it theological or practical? It's both. Is it heart or head? It's both. Is it this earth or new earth? It's both. Is it counseling or deliverance? It's both. Is it discipleship or outreach? It's both. Is it traditional church or contemporary church? It's both. Is it liturgical or non-liturgical? It's both. Is it holiness or revelance? It's both. Is it prayer or action? It's both. And she ended by saying this. The things we have used to divide us, we need to use to unite us. The things that we have used to divide us, we need to use to unite us. You know, as I was getting dressed this morning, I couldn't help but think about what Pastor Coop wore last week. What do you wear if you were here? It is had his clerical on, didn't he? I don't own a clerical. I'm wearing Eddie Bauer today. My daughter works at Eddie Bauer. She gets a nice discount. You see, just as every church is different, almost every pastor is different, aren't they? Pastor Coop is different than me. I'm different than the next. You ever been to a church service that was the same in two different places? Usually there are some differences. Sometimes they're close to the same, right? But we're all on the same team, aren't we? Sometimes we don't act like that. See, sometimes I can write a sermon and get some great feedback from one person and then the next day I'll get an email that'll point out everything I said wrong. You just have to remember this, that each and every one of us is on a faith journey. And where I'm at is different than where you're at and where you're at is different where you're at and where you're at is different where you're at and where you're at is different where you're at and, you're at you're at. and today we're all up an hour earlier. Right? You see, our churches, I think they have this perceived opposing truth, and they go, and those outside the church do this. You can't, why should I believe you? You can't even agree. See, I feel the next 10 years of the church are gonna be challenging, it's probably too easy of a word to use. The next 10 years of the church are gonna be very interesting to see what's defined as a church today, as a church in the next generation. As you think about that, you think about your own church. Where will our church be in five years or 10 years or a year from now? Where will it be? What will it be about? My prayer for every, for, as, as a member of this church is to take this time and focus on what God's church is and to live that in our daily lives. see our daily lives we have to admit we live in this paradox don't we of recognizing our sinful flesh and following our Christian faith so I admit we know the struggle right so how do we live in this paradox how as Christians do we live between the sinful flesh and the power of the Holy Spirit that's inside of us one word answer is faith it has to be faith Faith is not produced by thinking it into existence. Faith does not come from your head. Faith comes from your heart. And from the heart, our faith fills our mind. I love the apostle Paul. I can relate to him in so many ways. This is one of my favorite verses. It's from 2 Corinthians. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If you garden and you have clay pots, what usually happens to clay pots if you drop them? They break, right? Sometimes you don't even have to break them. I mean, they just get fragile, they get brittle. Sometimes you pick them up wrong and they break. What's Paul saying here is our lives are like a fragile clay jar. They're like that without God. But with God, we had this surpassing power that was wrapped in his love for each and every one of us. Along with this verse, I saw this meme this week. I think it's from Mike Donahue from 10th Avenue North. But a friend posted this on social media, so I'm not taking any credit for it. But this is a picture of a music book with a torn cover. And the child is worried about getting in trouble because the cover's torn, and it might be ruined. Apparently, that's a mole that he wrote there. "No," said the mole. Look at, the, look at the music, it often comes through where things are broken. Look at the music, it often comes through where things are broken. You see, God's love shines through the cracks of our imperfect lives. Never doubt God's ability to show his love through his brokenness, through our brokenness and tragedy. That's the only reason I can come in reasoning to come up with why Jesus came to this earth and stood in front of Caiaphas that day in the Sanhedrin council and said, I am. He did it for you, he did it for me. Let us pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for understanding the struggle that we live in every day. and giving us the power inside of us. The power belongs to you that shines through the brokenness and the tragedy and the struggles of our everyday lives. So as we're going through these stations of the cross, God, we ask you to focus, focus on you, and to be the church you called us to be. Not that it divides us, but unites us, that unites us at the cross. We pray all these things in your precious son's name. Amen.